are here. In the 11FS offices in WeWork Allgate, London, for episode 44 of Blockchain Insider. I'm Simon Taylor, back in the host seat at long last. Today we bring you Binance blows Deutsche Bank out of water, Nasdaq open to becoming a cryptocurrency exchange, apparently, and Pitbull the rapper turns to blockchain. Great. Well, I'm not alone today. Um, I'm joined in the office by my co-host, Sarah Kachansky. Sarah Kachansky, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. Thanks for being back on the show. And thank you for ably steering the show in my absence and I, I think making it much better. Oh, thank you. You're welcome. And uh, we're joined by assistant producer, Petrit Berkshire. Petrit, how are you, sir? I'm very well. Thank it's you, Barishka, Simon. not Berkshire. I can never say your name. It's Barishka. Barisha. Barisha. I'm, one of these days, I'm going to not butcher your name. <laughs> It'll come. It'll come. <laughs> we're all believing. All right, before we get started, I just want to say a quick word about our sponsors who apparently don't live near a field and shout out to Colin we miss you. Today's episode of Blockchain Insider is brought to you by Corda. Corda is an open source blockchain platform that allows businesses to transact directly in strict privacy using smart contracts. Corda enables complex transactions using real assets and legally binding agreements without the need for a trusted intermediary. Corda is the result of a collaborative effort led by R3 and over 160 of the world's largest banks and tech partners. It is ready to build on today. The financial community is deploying Corda to manage their agreements and move assets globally. Now you can transform your business ecosystem with a platform selected by the world's largest institutions to build their future on. Go to corda.net to learn more. All right, let's do this. First story comes from Reuters, and this was one heck of a headline. Do you love a good headline on the show? Uh, apparently, one in five financial institutions are considering cryptocurrency trading. This comes from a survey, and among respondents who said they were willing to trade cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin, 70% said they were planning to start trading in the next three to six months. It's one heck of a stat. What do you think about this one, Sarah? Uh, so me being me, I want to dig into methodology a little bit more. So it's 400 clients across Thomson Reuters Corp. So these are clients of Thomson Reuters. And that includes, you know, your large asset managers, your hedge funds and your trading desks. But it also includes lots and lots of quite small private family offices. So that stat of one in five, if you look into it, doesn't actually feel that high. So that's 20%. 20% are considering it. Mm, yeah, okay. I mean, I know we're going to kind of look at this a little, in a little bit more detail later on, but I think it's, I think I would be surprised if that many weren't considering it. And I am surprised that actually to me that feels a little low. I would have thought maybe more of the of those companies would, would be looking into it. So the, the timeline's interesting to me here. It's the next three to six months. Banks usually say we're considering something in three years, which means we haven't really thought about it because uh, they want to feel like, oh, yeah, of course we've thought about doing all the AI. We'll do all of the AI in about three years, <laughs> uh, But uh, which is basically we, we don't have a clue. This is, if it's three to six months for 70% of that 20%, which is still a good chunk, this is coming pretty soon, and this is on the back of, of a few other you know, kind of signals in the market that they're considering this space. I mean, is it is it um, three to six months for people like you know Falkenbank in Switzerland, who are quite small, have very niche clients, who have very niche needs, and it's very easy for them to roll something out? It's interesting to me. I think you're absolutely right. I think it's a signal of things to come. I just think that we shouldn't get too overexcited just yet. But what I'm hearing is some of the larger institutions there's stuff going on there like this isn't a rumbling without there's no smoke without fire here the interesting thing is by most regulators and uh kind of most large institutions bitcoin's gone have gone from pariah to yeah you know it's, we kind of get that it's kind of regulated we kind of understand it yeah i mean like the institutional interest has certainly grown like hand in hand with progressive regulation and i think that's that's always going to happen with these big banks and financial institutions as well. But it's also on the back of regulated futures markets. So CME Group have now been out for, what, four or five months with their um, futures product, and the volumes for that are growing. Now, granted, they started from a low base of around three to 4,000 contracts a day, and they're up to 11,000 contracts a day. But that's that's not nothing, right? And that, that regulated space is, is interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think um, we talked about it a little bit last week, but we did mention that, um, I'm sorry you weren't here, you know, just to fill you, we mentioned the Goldman story. We didn't have time to talk about it on the show, but like the, the story was that Goldman Sachs have hired a former crypto trader. His name's Justin Schmidt. He's going to head up their digital assets division. And, you know, they, they are very exactly what you said, you know, big bank. We're exploring how best to serve our clients' needs. But if you add that 
to the story we've just talked about. And I guess there's slightly more weight there. Well, there's a rumor, I forget the website, we'll try and catch this in the show notes, about Barclays apparently opening a, a desk. And there's rumors coming around of a few more popping up now. So again, no smoke without fire on some of this stuff. I, I think it has kind of shifted. And part of that is the progressive kind of legitimization of Bitcoin into having a futures market, but also some of the work of global regulators like the Financial Stability Board, uh, like, uh, but also the the infrastructure itself. So GDAX is now you know, a reasonably uh, well-known organization to most global regulators. But you have organizations like uh, DRW Cumberland, who have a major OTC desk. In fact, I heard an interview with their CEO on Laura Shin's Unconfirmed podcast, which was really, really good, sort of clearly articulating who their client base are. And yes, it has largely been sort of large family offices or multifamily offices. But the interest in the institutional level is there. And what's interesting to me is that the larger institutions have wanted in but felt the space wasn't very legitimate. And maybe that's starting to kind of flip a bit. Well, you, you mentioned how institutional investors and big banks are actually looking at Bitcoin and saying, you know, we might have to take a look at this and looking it properly i mean the goldman sachs ceo once tweeted you know still thinking about bitcoin no conclusion not endorsing slash rejecting it know that folks also were skeptical when paper money displaced gold so there has been that public interest on goldman sachs's side did, did anybody see this tweet from the st louis fed as well that came out yeah that was yeah. really cool um so the st louis fed you know pretty much a, a foundational institution of the u.s dollar printing actually equivocated uh, you sort of said and you've heard many times people say oh well bitcoin has no intrinsic value and their tweet was along the lines of yeah neither does cash like yeah. the, the u.s dollar has no intrinsic value we just all think it does yeah i mean the yeah i mean the, the tweet you're talking about i mean if people haven't seen it you can find it on, on my twitter timeline you can find it on simon's as well it's, it's really really clear and simple explanation of kind of how to explain bitcoin to people who don't really get it i think that the key point they were making is that um the u.s government has declared the dollar legal tender they have not yet declared bitcoin legal tender but your point is absolutely right like and if anybody wants to look a five pound note it doesn't say you know this piece of paper is worth five pounds it says the bank of england promises to pay the bearer of this piece of paper five pounds so it's a promissory note it's interesting than- you say about the the u.s government what they have said about bitcoin though is that it should be taxed like property uh, it should be kind of considered by the cftc to largely be regulated like a commodity in financial markets and if it's moved as a means of payment you should probably be looking to be regulated as a money transmission business now granted that's pretty confusing but those are all official statements. Um, but is that not an acceptance of the fact that there is no one size fits all here? And, and an acceptance of the fact that we are seeing divergence. So different tokens are being used for different things. So it's so there probably will be some that will be property. There probably will be some that will be means of payment. And there probably will be some that are commodities. I think that's fair. I, and I also think taxing something like property is actually a really beneficial thing that the community probably wants because capital gains tax versus money taxation is and foreign currency taxation is a bit different. Just bringing it back to this Goldman thing that they hired the former crypto trader. Don't forget that uh, Goldman does have an investment in Circle and Circle kind of trading limited, but Poloniex. So they now have a very one of the larger exchange front end UIs, but they've had for some time one of the larger trading desks as well. So their desk, there was a, an article I saw recently that they're doing sort of two to three billion US dollars per day in, in volume and value. That's really significant. I mean, granted, in the world of financial services and capital markets, it's not the biggest desk in the world, but it's a meaty desk. And I think it's it's kind of uh, so I think organizations like Goldman have had a front row seat through their investing strategy into into how to keep this space legitimate. They've also had lots of analysts look at the actual crypto market itself. They've published lots of reports talking about I know we don't talk a lot about the price on this show, but they have done a lot of reports, particularly when the the price was sky high before Christmas time and around about that time they they publicized a lot of reports that were talking about how they were warning their investors and clients about this space and how it was looking like a bubble and they turned out to be correct in that in that sense as well it's interesting how it's moving into that institutional space more so than the retail space and and that's coming along around the same time if we're getting price stability but i gotta move on because we could spend forever on this story um next one comes from ccn.com and this is a bit of a another attention grabby headline uh <laughs> 
Crypto exchange Binance, some considered by some to be the prior, others the hero of uh, the crypto exchange world, apparently is more profitable than Germany's biggest bank, Deutsche Bank. So the CEO said Binance is the world's largest cryptocurrency exchange. In the first three months from inception, profits amounted to seven and a half million US dollars. Uh, in the second quarter, profits amounted to 200 million US dollars. The third quarter is still in progress and is expected to have further growth. Any country that can attract Binance to open a branch in their location will receive a handsome tax income it's revenue. a bribe that's a bribe it makes me oh I, right this that makes me very angry of course it's more profitable it doesn't have any outgoings it yeah. doesn't have a compliance team it doesn't have any regulation to abide by it has very few staff it can charge whatever fees it likes without any kind of regulation or cap on them which banks definitely can't do and you know this kind of like any country that will can attract finance to open a branch will receive a handsome tax income revenue well that yeah okay if you can track it yeah. you know I am. Wow, it makes me so angry because, of course, they're making more money. Of course, they are. They're not. They're a much smaller, much more agile, much less regulated institution. And, and let's be fair. This is all crypto to crypto trading. So they're not touching regular fiat mm. money. They're not touching dollars. They're not touching sterling. They're not touching euro or anything like it. And the CEO Zhao here has has been a bit of a you know, kind of where is he in the world? Has many hotels. Nobody knows really where they're going to be. But has now popped up in Malta and said, "Well, Malta are geniuses for allowing us to uh, to be regulated there." Which, granted, there's there's two sides to this argument which is well somewhere had to bring this into legitimacy but i don't know if this is really doing the right thing for on the one hand we say that bitcoin and eth are now being seen as legitimate by large trading institutions and something you can work with on the other hand you've got behavior like this which just optically looks wrong whether or not they are well intended with the binance whether or not building an exchange where you can trade these crypto assets against each other for low cost is a remarkable achievement i think it is statements like this really don't help I think when Binance was first coming into prominence, I think Zhao was actually really good on social media in particular, being quite transparent when people were talking about rumors about hacks and stuff. He was very quick to dismiss them. He was also very quick to dismiss certain articles about certain things. But the more he's allowed to say things in the open, the crazier and, I don't know, just mad Binance themes because I, I read a really interesting Bloomberg article a couple of months back with that interviewed him and we discussed this on a show before and one of the quotes there was Zhao keeps the locations of Binance's offices and servers secret making it tough to determine which country has jurisdiction over the company and he instructs employees to keep quiet about their affiliation with the exchange on social media. I know I said I wasn't going to sit on my head in my hands this episode but I would like to put my head in my hands at this point. Like, it doesn't do yourself any favours. <laughs> it, it doesn't. Now, look, there is a view of the world that says that we want to live in a global future in which one jurisdiction, which may have controls around currency or another jurisdiction, which may not be the freest in the world, is something that we as individuals have the ability to get around and, and live in a, in a free society. And, 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 and I buy that idealism. I just don't buy this path to achieving that idealism. Like, I think we all want the same outcome. We just don't want to be idiots on the way there. There's a really interesting tweet you came out with on the 27th of April. This is on the back of Vitalik Buterin having come out and said that like he's going to boycott Vitalik Buterin. I'm sure everybody knows uh, found one of the founders of Ethereum. He's going to boycott the Consensus Conference, which is coming up in New York from CoinDesk. He raised a number of issues with CoinDesk as a, as a publication. Firstly, apparently that they he, he's alleging that they backed scams. He's alleging as well several other bits and pieces about their non-journalistic integrity. Then Zhao comes out and says uh, on the 20. 27th of April, I learned that most journalists are forbidden by their employers to hodl any crypto. Should they be forbidden to own fiat if they write about trade wars? So now we have journalists who have never done a single blockchain transaction writing slash teaching the public about blockchain. Going forward, I am inclined to only accept media interview requests from journalists who hodl some crypto so that I don't have to repeatedly answer are bitcoins only used by drug lords. I actually rolled my eyes there. This offends me, given my former profession. Like, there are there are so many questions there. Like, well, if I'm writing about drug trafficking, do I have to have trafficked drugs? <laughs> you know, if I'm writing about, you know, when you're a journalist, there are a lot of things that you look into which are not necessarily savoury or otherwise, but that's not the point. The point if is, you're writing about murder, do you have to have murdered? Exactly. Like, <laughs> it's a ridiculous argument. <laughs> if you're a journalist or an analyst, then you should be able to be neutral. I mean, the argument goes the other way, right? If you do hold um, cryptocurrencies, then you are in incentivized to write a piece that would move the price of that currency one way or the other as well. So that's the counter argument to it. There's, there's so many 
I mean, I, I do think if you do hold them, you should be required to, to state at the to bottom. Disclose. My former employer, business decided that, you know, if you, if you do hold any stocks and shares or any cryptocurrencies or anything like that, there is always a sentence at the bottom which says, and I think TechCrunch do the same. And I think that's fair because you may be biased and you're, you're explaining your bias up front. But I, I can't, but his argument is completely ridiculous to me. Yeah, for the avoidance of doubt, I do have a very small holding of Bitcoin and Ether, but you're looking at single digit numbers of both. And I, I agree with disclosures. The um, journalist Laura Shin, who's ex Forbes, is somebody who has that disclosure on every article because she finds herself in a position where she does hold those currencies, but also does a pretty good job of holding people to account. And you can see that. Uh, so I'm generally concerned about this approach. But again, to kind of uh, come to that last point, all Bitcoin's only used by drug lords. I think we're all getting a little bit sick of that as well. Like that view of, you know, that binary view of the world that it's either sublime or ridiculous can no longer be, we can't reduce things to being that simplistic. And I imagine somebody in Jao's position brings it on himself a lot. Mm. But at the same time, uh, we have to get away from that, that simplicity. He needs to stop tweeting. <laughs> That's probably not the only one. Uh, next story, <laughs> moving to the New York Times. Uh, a former top Wall Street regulator turns to the blockchain, apparently. Sarah, do you want to tell us what's going on with this one? Sure, yeah. So the guy's name is Gary, I'm going to say Gensler, could be Gensler, was one of the top financial regulators under the Obama administration. Um, the New York Times wrote a piece about him sort of almost two weeks ago now saying that he was going to give a speech at uh, MIT, which he's just joined, I think, as a visiting professor or similar he's working with MIT anyway you know he this New York Times piece was written where it said he's going to come out and say Ether and Ripple should be securities um, you know and then he got they got a lot of pushback you know what qualification does he have he's not a lawyer you know mm. that kind of thing and he kind of went, came back and said well actually I may not be a lawyer but hear me out and then um, the actual speech he did give which was a few days later he was I think he was quite clear in his argument and I think he was fair in it as well so he was like you may agree with me or you may not but his explanation of it was so Bitcoin came into existence as mining began as an incentive in validating a distributed platform. So there was no initial token offering, there were no pre-mined coins, and there was no kind of common enterprise. Um, and then he goes on to talk about what's called the Howey test, which is how you decide if something's a security or not, I, I think. Um, and then he says, you know, Litecoin and Bitcoin Cash are both forks of that, so that's why that's not a security. And then he goes on to explain about Ether and Ripple. And, you know, again, he doesn't single them out. He just says, here are some, here are some characteristics of those particular tokens, which mean that they probably should be considered as securities. People made a thing up and sold it to people versus a system was set in motion that created a thing that other people could pick up and sell. And I think the, the, the term mining is actually a really good metaphor for what happens with Bitcoin. An algorithm has the ability to identify and generate Bitcoins. If you run that algorithm, it's same as speculating for gold. If I mine gold, I do not need a contract with the earth. I have the ability <laughs> to sell that gold at anywhere. Someone and they, argue you should, but that's another conversation. That's another conversation, <laughs> but within most uh, jurisdictions, I do not need a contract with the earth I'd, I'd love to see what that contract would look like i'm, I'm thinking got like, greenpeace are on it now yeah, aren't they? make that happen but then yeah and, and so the interesting thing about of course ethereum is it did have a pre-sale they sold a certain amount in their early days for bitcoin there was a direct purchase of those that was issued by a central body in this case the bitcoin foundation however since then, you've been able to mine Ethereum. So it's in this gray area where more of the Ethereum that have now been mined, that are in existence, came from being mined than were pre-mined. Mm. So that's in that sort of halfway between the two. It's not algorithmically generated or centrally issued. It's, it's a bit of both. Whereas Ripple arguably is centrally issued. There's, there's one set of organizations or there's one organization that has a set of technology that creates the ability to issue Ripple. Well, it's interesting you talk about Ethereum, obviously. Uh, we were going to talk about the Preston Bryan article, but I think it's quite a good way to tie it in. In that article, he talks about whether or not Ethereum's a security, and he, he talks about how a lot of ETH was sold to only probably a handful of buyers at around like 2014, right? Which is kind of not good because it gives... It gives the impression that it has been issued as a security. Yeah. And, and I think that there's there's definitely a view that, like, in reality, ETH is not behaving like a security today, but it did then. So it raises the interesting question is, if it did then, are we holding out for the statute of limitations to say that any person that has done that should not be subject to laws or that we're above the law? Or are we saying, well, it's behaving differently, so we should 
take that into account? Or are we saying, well, it's behaving differently now, but we should probably go and look at how we remediate that and how we put appropriate paperwork in place and provide the right disclosures? Because that last thing shows a sign of maturity that I think would be welcomed by many. I think it goes back to that point that, you know, we were making earlier that there are many different types of token. You can't possibly be, I'm, I'm calling them tokens, but crypto assets, cryptocurrencies, whatever you want to call them, that cannot all be lumped, you know, swept under the rug or put in the same bin or whatever you want to, you know, everyone whatever you want to call it, you've got you've got to examine each one individually. And that is a pain because regulators really don't want to have to sit down and talk to the guys at Bitcoin, if they could find them, the guys at Ripple, the guys at Ethereum and sort of say, well, okay, because of this, you're going to have to be X, but that's going to be an X, Y, and they're going to be an X and a half Y. But I think actually that's what's got to happen at this point with these with these big organizations anyway. Well, and the reality is in Singapore, the Monetary Authority of Singapore have come out and said most of these things are not securities, even if in the US they would qualify as them. Mm. In Japan, they've said, well, actually these things fall within the virtual currencies law so you need to follow the rules for the virtual currencies law so if and the reality is these things are global they are decentralized they can be traded anywhere like a lump of gold so the really difficult thing is whilst you are trying to make these things backwardly compatible with an existing set of rules you have an incredibly complicated web of existing rules and overworked regulators who would rather the industry got itself together and figured out what that looked like and i think standard setting bodies at the global level have started to pay attention to this we saw coming out of the last um, g20 summit in buenos aires mark carney the chair of the fsb and the governor of the Bank of England had come out and said, look, by July, the G20 um, and the finance ministries will report back on how we start to harmonise some of these rules globally. And I think the point is as well, we've seen this with, as you say, the Monetary Authority of Singapore and um, the FCA. They are overworked. They are really tired. And if you can come to them with a sensible plan, they'll almost certainly listen to you. Well, and let's be fair, in, in the UK, there are, have been people that have issued, so I think it's Navora, have, and I'm, I know listeners will be sick of me mentioning this, but have issued a regulated security on a permissionless blockchain. It can be done. Like you can get, you can get it. It's just, you've got to jump through a lot of hoops and you've got to work really hard to do it. So how do you make that path easier for for innovators and software developers because the reason Wozniak and Jobs were able to start a company in their garage, um, Zuckerberg was able to start a company in the garage on a, in a college room dorm, issuing a token for it to really reach its potential has to get to that level of simplicity. And yet that doesn't necessarily work. Although there is a flip argument that says, well, if you're raising 30 million, you can probably afford some lawyers. The simplicity shouldn't be regulators putting like just creating buckets for these assets to fall into though should it but it shouldn't be looked at individually that there, there has to be some sort of meeting in the middle what that eventually is i'm not Sweeping too sure everything into existing buckets is probably not optimal but what's really interesting is if you listen to uh, or if you read some of jay clayton's recent so the uh, i think he's the governor is his official title of the sec or it might be the chair i forget their their exact titles he's been sort of saying that look we recognize that there are things that behave like a token for using a laundromat and where things behave like a token for using a laundromat then there's probably things we should think about in terms of consumer protection but that's not a security but the reality is how most of these things have been created don't look like that so i mean this stuff is hard and it will come through and um, there you've mentioned uh, i think briefly there petrit that there is uh, an article from the uh, the never shy preston burn um on his prestonburn.com blog on why ether is a security and he's been saying this for four or five years so i think he's, he's quite pleased with himself that, that the world is starting to come around to that but uh, as we mentioned it started life looking like one the reality is now it doesn't look like one for the most part so i think there has to be some sort of score draw there it's not going to be a game of absolutes what you can pick up from that article as well is how can anything be truly decentralized if one party or a few people own such a significant chunk of a market cap or whatever we see that with ripples you know the company owning that much xrp and at the beginning of ethereum's lifetime a few people owning that much eth i think then you then what you do is you put rules into effect about the use rather than the ownership or the use of it so if you if it is proportional taxation or proportional regulation if you own like then that significant proportion then you are liable for a significant proportion of the rules or regulations or tax or whatever it is so, so that's the way you do it you use proportional regulation but I would not want to be writing those rules. <laughs> no. All right. Um, next story comes from CNBC.com. Apparently, Nasdaq is open to becoming a cryptocurrency exchange, the CEO says. Uh, once regulation is smoothed out in the space, 
matures, NASDAQ would consider becoming a digital currency exchange. Um, The quote here is, if we do look at it and say it's time, people are ready for a more regulated market, for something that provides fair experience for investors, I believe that digital currencies will continue to persist. And it's just a matter of how long it will take for that space to mature. Uh, Once you look at it and say, do we want to provide a regulated market for this? Certainly NASDAQ would consider it. Yeah, I mean, I think this goes back to the conversation we're having about institutional banks. Of course, they'd consider it. Why wouldn't they? You know what I mean? It's kind of they can see that there's money to be made as Binance approved. They can see that people want it. Nasdaq is actually, uh, you know, they invest quite a lot into blockchain and Bitcoin startups. They're, Nasdaq is very interested in blockchain based infrastructure. Definitely. They've, I can't think of my head the name of any, but they have invested in chain.com. Yeah. And, and, and many others um, that are actually, you know, they're looking at it from perspective of, well, how do we make our own capital markets run? more efficiently but in so doing as we said about you know Barclays and Goldman they're almost certainly learning from those startups and seeing okay well maybe there's other ways we can integrate this into our portfolio I always wonder though is like making what we used to have go faster um, the right way to learn where you can if you think about these assets the experimentation that's happening within these assets as they're maturing might be the fastest place to learn what the future might look like and so for example if when the carbon uh, I think carbon bond or carbon trading was was brought new imagine if that was hadn't happened yet and was happening today would you do that put that on existing infrastructure or would you look to blockchain and dlt and so this is one of those examples where you can say well why not envision the future with new asset classes that are maturing rather than always taking the old asset classes but then the size of the market thing is still there and the problem's still there i mean it's something that i feel really passionately about is like when you're using technology you shouldn't be looking at this is where we're getting back into the digitization versus digitalization argument isn't it but when you're looking at technology you shouldn't just be looking at it as a way to make you know as you said, old things move faster or be more efficient, you should be looking at going right back to the beginning and thinking, okay, how can we reinvent this set of processes? How can we remove the steps? How can we circumvent that? Or how can we simply just do things differently? I would argue that NASDAQ can still take bits from watching their investments and use those and think, okay, well, we've got resources, we've got a brand, we've got all this learning. Maybe we can put something new together here. I was talking to a guy who works for a bank at a, at a roundtable, I think, last week. And he was saying that often the temptation when a new technology comes along is to use the way we used to do things with the new tech. And then we struggle to figure out why we're not getting the benefits. So the example was when the first iron bridges were being built, the rivets and the joints they used were the same ones you would use if you were using wood. Of course, iron was capable of a lot more from a tension strength standpoint than wood is capable of. But we didn't know what are the joints to build. Like We just didn't have that knowledge. So that change in mindset and change of what the technology is capable of, like if you're trying to do it the way you used to do it and then expecting different results, it doesn't matter that you're using a different tech. You have to yeah. do it differently. And I think that's the harder mindset shift and the business model shift. Well, that's the, that's the old saying, isn't it? With the definition of madness, doing the same thing over and over again, <laughs> expecting different results. And just because you're doing a blockchain rather than, you know, a, a shared database or whatever in the background doesn't necessarily mean anything different. Yeah, it's certainly really interesting, isn't it? I think you don't necessarily need to transform. You might need to just create from the bottom up, right? Oh, ASX might disagree with you. Story here from Finextra. Um, The Australian Securities Exchange has set a timetable for switching to distributed ledger. Uh, They'll begin the switch from their chess post-trade settlement system, which I think was built in 1994, to a new blockchain-based platform provided by Digital Asset between the, uh, famously, uh, the CEO of Digital Asset is, of course, Blythe Masters, between the fourth quarter of 2020 and the first quarter of 2021 very specific. So ASX says that approximately 50 new business features will be made available over the new platform in areas such as account structures uh, and information, pre-settlement, settlement, and the corporate action process. Wow. Okay. So there's a lot to unpack there. But what, what I like about this is whilst it's doing a lot of the old stuff, it is sort of in that middle ground, right? I mean, corporate actions, for those of you who never come across the term, this is when a company will announce it's had a change of chairman or change at the board or they're doing a dividend or their annual report. Just a corporate did a thing that wasn't a trade. It's legal documentation, basically. That everybody needs to know. Now, you cannot imagine the amount of different databases that need to register that and reconcile that and have it be the same around the world. It is agonizing for most people that work in capital markets, just dealing with corporate 
actions and it's considered stupid because it should it could be as simple as like that thing happened we can all see that that thing happened why can't we agree that that thing happened it's made for blockchain and dlt surely yeah um, but in order to get the benefits of that, you probably need to start thinking about, well, uh, yeah, but how do we plug into the blockchain? How does our existing infrastructure work? Which is why having a central party, weirdly, like the ASX, is really valuable for getting that value. Yeah, so this is a really interesting story that I've been following like since we first heard about it. The thing that you must be aware of is that ASX is a minority stakeholder in digital asset holdings. Yep. They own a chunk of it. So they have a vested interest in getting this up and off the ground. That doesn't mean it won't work, but you've got to understand that like where other... They've had so many hurdles to get to this point. You know, they had a stakeholder pushback. They had pushback from the Australian government. They had pushback from all sorts of people. And they have, it's taken them two years to get to this point where they said, we will do it. Not because they hadn't decided in the head this is the technology they wanted to use but because they had to go over those hurdles and through those hoops and whatever else but um, i can imagine that at some point uh, there's definitely a view at the silver-haired level where you you we're going to use some of this blockchain stuff and governmental people start going oh the bitcoin thing oh, we can't have that uh, and then the reality of this is being it's actually a very sober very well thought through upgrade to infrastructure yeah. that is using something that i would barely describe as a blockchain in fact they don't this they're, they're using the term distributed ledger because if you look at what the core kind of white papers that have come out from digital asset have they talk about their global synchronization log and they talk about daml uh, digital asset markup language this is the idea that there's a way of representing legal agreements in software and then having those legal agreements so the clauses in those legal agreements be managed by that software between everybody it's more kind of the I suppose the smart contract end of it, isn't it? I think the point that I was going to make is that if they can get this up and off the ground, then nobody ha else has an excuse to say, no, we won't consider it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, for all those um, exchanges looking to replatform, and, you know, a lot of them will have to replatform just to keep up because the, the speed at which the capital markets industry is moving has, it's always been tech savvy. It's always moved fast and it, that's not going to stop. If ASX can get this up and running and it working, then mm -hmm. they have a model for other people to use. That's exactly what I was going to say. If they can successfully create this infrastructure, then that's going to inspire other people to do it, right? So I would imagine so. And, and look, some of the things that organizations in the clearing side of financial services and cap markets and the FMIs, financial market infrastructures, are looking at is how do we get to the point where uh, a, a bank or anybody on the buy or the sell side who has to park collateral, and collateral is expensive. So I've got to take bond and I've got to park it with you. I've got to park this collateral at this FMI. But in theory, I should be able, if I'm not doing anything there, I should be able to move it from the ASX to the DTCC to the London uh, Clearing House. I should be able to move it between them. Why can't I have it at multiple places? Because why do I need to duplicate it? It's doing the same thing at different times. Why can't I just move it around where I need to? It's extremely difficult to do. If they all move in this direction, you could potentially have collateral at multiple venues. And it was actually our very own Colin G. Platt, GSAS himself, who suggested that idea to me early on. So shout out Colin G. Platt near your field. All right, next story uh, comes from thenextweb.com. University College London, uh, also known as UCL, have severed their ties with the IOTA Foundation. The statement read, the UCL Centre for Blockchain Technologies is no longer associated with the IOTA Foundation. Don't know why I'm putting on a weird voice. In relation to a recent news report, we will reaffirm our support for open security research as a prerequisite for the understanding and the assurances provided by any blockchain technology. It is appropriate for security researchers to be subject to threats of legal action inappropriate it is inappropriate <laughs> for security researchers to be subject to the threats of legal action for disclosing their result yeah i mean you might want to, the background here i'm sure we've done the background here haven't we uh, no i don't think we have so we haven't okay. covered iota much the thing about iota is that they basically mit basically audited them and found some bugs and said here are some bugs in your system at this absolute most basic level and iota went no there aren't you can't say that we're gonna sue you mm. and the mit went wait what what like we're we're an audit. We're auditing you. That's what audit is. Like you, you, you kind of you work out what the problems are, and then you feed it back. And then the company, you know, then there's a negotiation period where the company can say, like, okay, that's fine. Can you give us four weeks so we can like fix it, and then you can tell everybody because we don't want to, to you know, share a vulnerability. But I mean, I'll leave Pet to read out the statement from the IOTA co-founder because this man is very, very angry, and I would say not entirely rational. Well, I mean, I was just going to say that. IOTA actually distanced themselves from their head cryptographer, which is the guy that wanted okay. to, like, sue the people at MIT, which is 
quite strange, right? They wanted to distance themselves from the guy who helped create a lot of the code that was being audited. Um, and, uh, you know, one of the co-founders at IOTA said, making such a drastic statement and decision based on falsehoods on a Friday night when no one can reach the people involved is not protocol for a prestigious university or any of its affiliates. So hitting quite hard on UCL. So, so UCL decided to release a statement on a Friday night so, what, nobody could hold them to account for it? Like, that that feels uh, slightly I, unlikely to me. That, that feels very unlikely, which is, a, I think all of this uh, drama is a bit of a shame because I IOTA on the face of it, with their Tangle concept, is a potentially very scalable way of reaching eventual consistency. In other words, getting a bunch of small devices that don't necessarily know each other to reconcile and to agree each other the state of transactions. In other words, it could be a way of making IoT a thing. This could It's really, really exciting, and academics get very excited by IOTA for that reason. It's scalable in theory, it's fast in theory, and the, therefore the interest from academia should be something we welcome. And of course, they're going to point out holes in it, but they're not doing it to kill the thing. They're doing it so that people fix it. And That's how academia works. Yeah. I mean, the, the interesting thing to me here is, that, is as you say, it, it's talking about, if we're talking about maturity, we're talking about scalability, we're talking about institutions wanting to be involved, you have to behave like a grown-up. Like, if you want to be accepted as part of that world and you want those guys to, to take you seriously, whether it's fair or not is not the point. You are going to have to, like, play by their rules. Imagine if they said we're saddened that this statement happened over the weekend and we hadn't had chance to react. We'll be looking into this and we look forward to collaborating with those institutions to close these gaps. We welcome the contribution of academia. Imagine the difference that statement makes. Everybody go, oh, that was smart. Whoa, yeah, whoa, seems reasonable. Yeah. I mean, it wouldn't have made this headline, but then IOTA's not exactly unheard of. I think it's one of the top 10 on crypto market cap or something thereabouts. This is one of the more widely held crypto assets. It's one that's considered by academia to be well-known and uh, exciting. I think we just do want to see these foundations start to start to reach that maturity. Well, I mean, Colin interviewed Charles Hoskinson a couple of episodes ago, and he was talking about how the Cardano Foundation actually welcome auditors and they want researchers to work with them because if they pass those tests or if they find bugs and then they can actually fix them, then it gives the, the whole foundation and project more credibility, which is what you want, right? You want to grow the brand and also the credibility of the brand. So how do you do that by consistently arguing with researchers trying to sue people at MIT and like just batting away every other cryptographer that comes at you it's not really the right way to go about things yeah I mean that's sorry I've just remembered that's where I'd heard the story about IOTA and um, and you know what, what the pushback was and I think his point was absolutely sound as well like you can't just go no you're wrong when somebody points out a mistake like that's not how the world should work it's not unlike engineers to, to react with, uh, with some egotism but I think the maturity cycle is what everybody's looking for going back to the um, the Nasdaq comments, everybody's looking for this space to mature. It feels like on the Bitcoin end, it's sort of getting there. Weirdly, even though Bitcoin itself, its governance is incredibly slow, and there's an always arguments about how to upgrade Bitcoin and it's forking all over the place. At least it's understood what that process looks like, and at least it's understood how it fits into most regulatory markets around the world. And I suspect we'll get there with these. And you know, IOTA, to my mind, still remains an incredibly compelling concept, incredibly compelling idea, and I hope they can uh, they can continue to grow because it could be really exciting if they did. And so the last story we have today comes from swj.com. And apparently, Switzerland wants to be the world capital of cryptocurrency. And I'm going to let Sarah read this one out because of the amount of work that went into pronunciation. So this is the, the first point here. Is this is not a new story. Like This has been around for a while. But it's to do with the canton, which is like a county or province of a place called Zug. I believe I'm saying that right, but I'm sure somebody will tell you that's wrong, which only has a population of around 120,000, but it has emerged of Switzerland's crypt as the heart of Switzerland's crypto valley. And there's literally Crypto Valley is an, an organization or a conglomerate that work together to actually push and promote. It's an industry members association of organizations in, in crypto assets and all that serve crypto assets businesses. Yeah, and, and, and they've long been pushing for this idea that, you know, they want to be the center of the cryptocurrency industry. You know, you've been able to pay part of your taxes, part of your income tax, I think it is. You've been able to pay for like your council bill, your council tax bill in Bitcoin in Zug for a while. So... I'm fine. Yeah. I mean, they're going along with it. You know, the Swiss regulator is also going along with it. They've been, they've allowed quite a few things to happen. We talked about Falcon Bank earlier. You know, that's a Swiss based bank. I think that there's, there's two things here. I mean, one is like Switzerland and Japan are kind of battling out between them to get the best regulatory framework in place. They've taken different routes to it. Um, 
you know, Switzerland is a place that's kind of known for knowing how to handle money. And Bank Secrecy Act and, and gun as well. Yeah, and, I mean, they, th- that's the other thing I was going to say was that they already kind of have a legal system that's possibly more suited to a slightly different way of doing things. That was diplomatic. <laughs> yeah, no, it was. On the one hand, when you listen to uh, the CEO of uh, FINMA describe their approach in the work they've done, they've actually been really diligent in understanding what crypto assets are. They've been really, like if you read the FINMA paper into uh, how they're defining crypto assets and how you, how they're regulating them, there are uh, there's some belts and braces gone on here. They've understood it and they've got close to it. Um, I like this um, approach being described as do your best and if you mess up, we'll work with you. I yeah. do think that there is a point at which regulation have started to embrace that but hadn't really embraced it for crypto assets and now could. Mm. There's obvious examples where there are clear abuses where that doesn't apply. But what we want to see is that this moves away from being, you know, just, I think it was an accident of history that Switzerland both had the track record in terms of being capable of managing large amounts of money for privately wealthy individuals. But they also had something called a shiftoon, which is a, a foundation governance model that works in which you could acquire different types of assets and have a board that managed those assets based out of Zug, which would have almost no tax implications. So that, again, attracted originally the Ethereum Foundation, and then a whole bunch of people followed that path. Tez also did the similar thing. I know that they're mired in all sorts of controversy these days but that was a similar idea that that was a similar thing that they did wasn't it and i think we are now seeing a variety of that but in and around uh, crypto valley there are lots of legitimate businesses and a lot of um, market leading thought that's coming out and arguably it is the, the number one place in the world with the largest concentration of people and technologists and uh, organizations and foundations so you, you got to say it's kind of worked there is an advantage to trying to legitimize a new and emerging market area but uh, you know what can we learn from it I mean, I mean, if you're, what I would say is there's probably quite a lot that can be learned from it. I would also say it's a very different set of circumstances if you're a very small, very rich country, you know, with a particular market, a particular audience. And, you know, as we were saying, Switzerland already has a track history of making it very easy for businesses and corporations to set themselves up. The tax regime is very friendly, you know, and particularly in the area of finance. So they had to head start, but I think, you know, they're doing a lot of the groundwork and other people can probably, can probably take things from what they end up implementing. Small country, no longer in Europe global financial center and known mm. for having good tax incentives for companies hmm. I, you can see why c- uh, countries would want to compete for this area if it can be legitimized and i think we'll see more of that well, that's what i was going to say whoever does become the world capital of cryptocurrency and i'm doing like air quotes here is going to stand to gain a lot right whoever can regulate digital assets in, in the best way again with air quotes because no one knows how to do that yet it's in a global market but do we want to always follow it in which there is um, no taxation and uh, there are havens or do we want a balanced approach in which um, this is a bona fide framework uh, for operating at the global level and my fear and i don't know if this is is warranted or not but my fear is some of the work around crypto valley hasn't helped with that some will um, and there's some very clear and i want to be clear there are some very legitimate looking organizations um, that, that come out of that space so i don't wish to insult any of them but that the optics still feel like they need work to me anyway i mean i also like the do your best if you mess up we'll work with you kind of mantra but like to what extent can you mess up <laughs> which is something they probably didn't specify <laughs> yeah i mean i mean the question there is always going to be and as I've, I've said this i've said this many times to people who've worked for me over the years regulators are not your friends they're not out to like protect you in case something goes wrong they say they are and that is but that is only one element of it so the question is they have to balance how much is an individual going to get hurt with how much are we going to stifle an industry but they're also so, not your enemy right so no, they, no, no. they have information and they can help you get to the point where you have a, a seal of legitimacy i.e. being regulated that can be very helpful for, for your business yeah no sorry just to clarify the point there i meant like with, with consumers so the question is everybody says you know somebody's going to get hurt big time and then the regulators are going to act but they're not necessarily going to act because the individual investors have been hurt big time they're going to act because of what implications that would have on the stability of the country's financial uh, system or in fact you know their own reputations mm-hmm. so it's just a case of be aware that there's a balance that those regulators all have to strike every single one of them and again I will repeat the sentence I wouldn't want to be writing those rules <laughs> yeah, tough place to be um, stories we did not have time to cover this week one from Coindesk um, that I encourage you to check out Barclays and Goldman champion uh, a new standard for block 
blockchain derivatives called the Common Domain Model, uh, built by the International Swaps and Derivatives Association. Uh, the, the headline was actually much more catchy than that, but I just thought I'd, they championed the ISDA standard for blockchain derivatives. And so standards in capital markets are critical. So that's actually uh, one of those sorts of headlines that's a bit of a dog whistle for most people. It's like, oh, what was that? I didn't really hear anything. Um, but for those that know what they're doing in cap markets, uh, it's kind of a significant movement. Um, and I know a lot of work's gone in from, from a lot of people to get that done. A uh, story from QZ.com, QZ.com. Uh, Tencent's latest game merges CryptoKitties and Pokemon Go. Apparently, they're using a blockchain behind the scene to have uh, unique collectible animals of some sort. With, it was uh, only a matter of time. Yeah, no, no, I don't. A few other people had had this idea, I'm sure, but um, Tencent doing games to spread their network. That's definitely happening with Player Unknown Battleground and, and other things. So, uh, you know, will they see that as a way to, to kind of um, grow their market share? Go on, Tencent. <laughs> and last. Last one, cnbc.com. Pitbull is turning to blockchain in hopes of saving the music industry. He's a cool guy. I don't really know what to say about Pitbull uh, talking about blockchain. You do often speak about how there could be a use case for blockchain in industries like oh the music industry is ripe for it content creators as well uh who think about it from a couple of angles right um first of all what is music it is a digital file that is owned but it's created by a person so it's, it's intellectual property that intellectual property is unique right somebody has created a unique thing the problem with the digital world is we never had digital uniqueness so if I send you an MP3, you have an MP3 and I have an MP3. If you forward it to your friend, now three people do. And if you forward it on... So the issue of, of digital uniqueness is being solved. It was solved by Bitcoin, uh, but it was solved by the humble crypto kitty. And so as daft as the humble crypto kitty seems, if you think about it in terms of there is only one of these songs, like the Wu-Tang album, for instance, you could have a unique collectible of an album and be the only person in the world that had that album or have one of a hundred. That has real value in the music industry. Yeah, I mean, it already has, you know, when people were buying limited edition LP covers, like you've already seen that model work. It's, it's well known. Uh, and then the second thing is um, Imogen Heap has been, has her own project called Mycelia. So Imogen Heap is a record artist i think triple platinum done well for herself and tells the story of she booked a big advertising deal i think at the other side of the world um i, I can't remember if it was australasia or somewhere and uh, had then sort of put a deposit on a house was really excited to move into a house was expecting the monies to come in from having booked this advertising deal and found herself in great deal of financial trouble because two years later she hadn't been paid so if, if you think like two days or six weeks for the banking system is bad like the music industry is just atrocious because of the layers of intermediaries that send each other bits of paper and take 90 days to send each other the next bit of paper before they can send the next bit of paper. Uh, yeah, it's, I mean, it's artists don't even make that much money anymore from their music. So I, I think this could be a way to rectify that, whether we like it or not. I think that we'll, we'll see a lot in the creation of digital art and, and um, digital assets generally, or natively digital assets, assets that are born digital. So not just music and video game pieces, but also things like software licenses. And then I think about it from a cap markets perspective, I start thinking, well, is that a security <laughs> but also if it is is that an opportunity for financial services so that's where things get really exciting um, but anyway um, before we give pitbull's um, music industry saving uh, blockchain any more uh, airtime let's figure out uh, what the tweet of the week is tweet 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 it's the tweet of the week tweet of the week this week's tweet of the week comes from is it Sicarius? Uh, and it reads Occasionally, I hear dollar crypto folks talk about finished projects regarding ICOs. They raised 25 million and don't even have a finished project yet. Angry emoji. Or found a gem ICO. They're launching uh, with a finished product. Dollar happy face emoji. I'm here to tell you that finished products are where dreams go to die. <laughs> uh, wow. Beauties, beauties of a speculative market. I mean, but also like an ICO is to, to raise money, right? Like it's the like you're raising money to do something with it, not to hold on to it. Like the, the whole the, the anger behind this and the, the kind of construct is... Uh, this is symptomatic of an industry that is looking to abuse not being regulated and 
unfortunately, it's behaviour like this that means that the regulators will continue to pay attention and eventually it becomes a cat and mouse game and it becomes the cat and mouse game eventually gets pushed so far to the fringes that the liquidity gets stamped out or it becomes harder and harder to get liquidity into these markets. So behaviour like this is, is kind of rife and it, and i can see why regulators um kind of want to want to stop it because who's benefiting from this idea that we're going to make something up and then we're all going to abuse it and then somebody's going to be a sucker like do we want that as a society i think there are some out there there are some anarchists who'll be like yeah that's fine let it go on but i don't know if that's the majority of public opinion and therefore if it's not the majority of public opinion how are you going to enforce it on the world and how are you going to make it happen because usually if if that's not the case then the the, the dominant myth wins out I think this tweet was like kind of summarizing crypto Twitter quite a lot. But uh, I think it was off the back of all the EOS talk and whether or not that market cap could outgrow Ethereum. I don't know if you wanted to shed any any light on that drama. Uh, well, we did interview uh, two of the EOS founders, I think, way back on episode 10 or episode 11. Um, so do scroll back through iTunes to hear from, uh, I think, Dan Larimer and uh, some of the guys at EOS um, to see what they think of that project. But yes, there's been a lot of hype lately around EOS. And of course, EOS was a token that was issued on top of Ethereum. Uh, it's considered a third gen. So they issued an ICO as an ERC20. And so you would send Ether to this address and in return you would get these EOS tokens. Those EOS tokens were written as a legal contract that was covered. I think it was Cadim in the FT covered it and said, this token does not represent a security claim, product, consumable or it has no it has no commercial value and cannot be used. It is entirely useless. I remember this. (laughs) I'm paraphrasing. But what they've done is they've built what is being looked at now by people in the blockchain space uh, from a consensus algorithm standpoint and from a project standpoint. There's there's a great deal of momentum and people buying into the technology. I've, I've been talking to a number of folks who say look, the i think the distributed proof of stake algorithm is making sense in terms of pragmatics they've gone for some this is me paraphrasing it's not me saying this and so they've gone for something whereby you select around about 2021 20, nodes to perform uh, a proof of stake consensus which gives you a lot more scalability and they're saying from experience that any more than that isn't practical and you always have to balance how many countries around the world do i need a node in and how many places can i do i need that to have the reality of a pragmatic version of decentralization, in other words, nobody, it's not controllable as a network. No, no, There can be no central authority, which starts to look a bit like uh, what we have with DNS and the internet. So there's definitely people kind of coming to a new level of building distributed systems. And these third gen platforms are really gaining traction at the moment. Alrighty, that does us for this week. Before we go, uh, Petra, do you have a Twitter account that people can find you at to give you uh, to give you all kinds of abuse? And I thanks do, for being but on it's, the show? it's very year seven. It's at Petra. It's P E T R I T nine nine six. Wow, that is that is like a, a seventh grade vibe there. Feeling that, um, Sarah. How about yourself? As always, I'm on at Sarah Kashansky. Brilliant. Um, thank you both for being on the show, and uh, thank you to the production team. So I have to thank Laura Watkins, our amazing producer, and we have Terence, our editor, um, and assistant producer Petra, who helped put the, together the show notes and performed on the show. Thank you. <laughs> Eleven Everest, the company that brings you this podcast, are a challenger agency who help banks, asset managers, FMIs, and anyone with a challenge of blockchain or DLT to achieve more. If you want to understand how to commercialize blockchain projects or just have a speaker for your next event, we hope that you'll get in touch. Hit up our website, 11FS.com, to find out more. Alrighty, uh, thank you very much for listening. Uh, reminder, if you like what you heard, please, please subscribe to our podcast. Leave us a review on iTunes. Those reviews help us so, so much. Um, and spread the word. Tell your friends and, and colleagues to listen to. We'll have more Blockchain Insider for you next week. Goodbye. <laughs>